right. Uh, man, I hope that was as encouraging uh, for you as it was for me. Um, you know, when we started this whole church thing seven years ago, we prayed that God would send us planters and missionaries and that somehow Covenant Church would be just one of the uh, um, spokes in the wheel of uh, a catalyst for church planting uh, around here and all around the world. And uh, Stephen and Morgan have been an answer to prayer um, for us. And I, I never want them to feel like removed from us. I want them to feel that our arms are, you know, six hours long, and, uh, and we were there, and he called a couple weeks ago and talked about the spiritual warfare, and it was a staff day for us. We took time praying. We spent time on Sunday. We sent messages to our groups to pray, um, and I want that to be, um, some of you maybe don't know them as well, the partains, but I want you to get to know them and to continue to pray for them like they're your, I mean, your family, just as they walk through difficulty that our arms would be right there with us. The cool thing about the Christmas conspiracy, we started our Advent season today. The cool thing about the Christmas conspiracy, when we started, all the money that we got were like a seed that was being sown towards something that we couldn't see. Um, and we did for uh, this seven, this will be our seventh year of doing this. We gave money to uh, the POW people, and we didn't even know exactly what was going on over there. And uh, actually, nothing was going on when we first started giving money. And since then, we've had uh, scripture translated, we're seeing churches birthed out of that. Um, we gave money to church planting, and uh, we, we passed it on to other people who were doing this, but we didn't have this real connection with anyone that was there. Um, with the hub, we started collecting money and supporting them in their early stages within the first, I think, the second year of their existence, and now they're growing up and being uh, more fully formed, and they're starting other ministries. They've added purchase and some other things, and so now what's kind of cool for me is to see that we've got people on the ground um, who are so thankful for Covenant Church. I ran into a couple of them um, just a few weeks ago in Phoenix, and uh, they make a, a beeline across the room of probably 100, 100 uh, different church planners in there, and they find me, literally uh, give me a hug. One guy, it's kind of a little awkward when they hug and they don't let go very soon, you know, and I'm kind of like not the touchy guy. I'm like, whoa, bro, this is, and literally tears coming down his face and said, I can't thank you for what your church has meant to me, especially my wife. Um, just on some of her darkest days, some random person from your church that we don't know, sometimes the cards aren't even signed, and it's just an encouraging note, or it's a gift card, or it's a prayer that someone's written down and sent them, and I don't even know who's doing that. So um, I just want to say thank you to our church for being a part, real hands um, and feet of Jesus to these people. So um, all that to say, I want to introduce you real quickly to our other church planters, and then I've got a small sermonette um, uh, this is the Kwok family. Um, there, this is, I met, I met this guy a couple months ago. He's phenomenal. His name is Chan. You kind of see him in the background. They didn't have any like good recent pictures. Uh, this guy, uh, is, uh, of Asian descent. Uh, I forget exactly where he's from. He's just lovable guy. He's went and planted a church in South, uh, LA. Um, that church is up and going and he's left there and moved to Compton, um, and met a friend, and those two, him and this African-American guy and a Filipino guy, are together fixing to plant this new church. And I, he don't know the name of the church. God's favor is on him in this weird, incredible way. Um, and uh, so he's, he's pre-launched, so I, wanna, I want us to pray for them. Their cards are in the back and a way to contact them, and you can write them a Christmas card. We've got some of those already addressed. Uh, the next family 
uh, the Elliott family, Andy um, and Carrie, their names, they're in uh, Bend, Oregon right now. They're leaving to move to Austin, Texas um, to plant the Beat Church. Um, they've raised up a launch team. There's 40 different people from all over the U.S. moving with them into Austin. Um, I don't know how you convince anyone to do that, but that's what's going on. Um, and so they're pre-launch too. They're, they're going to move within the next few months. Some of their people have already moved uh, there. Next family. Uh, the Beeman family, they were part of our church planting uh, group from last year there in San Diego. And Convergence Community Church, and they celebrated their one-year anniversary, I think, just a few weeks ago. And they are planting another church in a different city. This, they started last week on their one-year anniversary. They launched another church from theirs. Um, he asked us to pray because when they launched this other church, like, they missed the help at the original church. And so, you know, you lose... Uh, 10 or 15 families, and so they're doing a really cool work. They're very similar style to us with uh, community groups um, and such. And then I think we've got one more, the Klein family. Um, it's kind of a unique thing here. Uh, Joe is a uh, husband. He's, he's a, just a great guy. Grew up a, a missionary's kid um, and is going to Mexico City um, to plant churches and to train church planters. And so him and his um, wife are, are headed down there um, in the next few months. Um, and then, of course, we've got the Partains that we all know and love, um, and they would appreciate Christmas cards too. So um, uh, that's, that's them. Um, really cool thing. Uh, I just don't think we can outgive God. I think that's the point. And so this whole season, we're going to ask you to give and give and give and give and bless and bless and bless and don't feel obligated to do any of it, but I pray, that, uh, I pray that you want to. I pray that you want to dig deep and forego some Christmas gifts or take an extra job or whatever you have to do to, to raise money for this, to involve this in your family, to write these Christmas cards. I would love to... These Christmas, these planters who don't even know us to get a Christmas card and maybe a, hey, we're praying for you or actually write the prayer out or if you want to, put a gift card in there. Um, on and on and on um, for the POW people, for the um, adoption initiative and orphan care for the hub. Um, I just pray that this is a season where we just give so generously and um, of our time, of our family, of our focus, certainly of our money. And um, we'll just see what God does there. I definitely don't think that you can outgive him, and I challenge you to um, really pray about what step God would have you take. Um, if you would turn to Luke chapter 2, um, we're going to start with uh, some of the Christmas uh, story um, and Luke 2, and then I think Psalms 107, if you want to put a f- finger there, bookmark there. Most of you are probably using your devices anyway. You can kind of flip back and forth, um, but that's kind of where we'll crank up. Let me say a quick prayer for us, and then we'll dive into the short version of the sermon uh, tonight. Father, thank you for uh, Thanksgiving, for your uh, Holy Spirit, who is the... Uh, the way that we know we're uh, Christians because we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you re- reside within us, um, testify within us, lead and convict of sin, point to Jesus again and again. And we are so thankful 
um, even in the midst of heavy hearts, that we can focus on your word and your gospel and we can celebrate and grieve at the same time. I pray, Father, that your word goes forth. It's planted into fertile ground and it produces change in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you've not walked through an Advent season before, specifically, Advent simply just means arrival. The implications of the season are far-reaching. Traditionally, um, people fast during maybe a time of Advent. It carries with it this sense of longing and expectancy, looking forward to the arrival of the Messiah and celebrating his birth with joy. And for us as Christians, it really has a dual meaning. Not only do we celebrate that Jesus did come, but we look forward to his second coming. And as this week, if we've been following um, just this, <clears throat> mostly online or through text with friends of this little Katie who was in the car wreck in the Grantham family, just through tears, Ashley and I in bed saying, this is not the way things are supposed to be. You're not supposed to lose a four-year-old. That's not how things are supposed to be. But because of sin and what it's done to our just created brokenness and wreckage everywhere. But Jesus is coming back to redeem those things. And that the worst pain that we feel, I heard one theologian say, the worst pain we ever feel on this earth, once we get to the other side, is just going to seem like a bad night in a hotel. Like just a, a, a bad hotel. It's just going to be one of those things once we see. But we live in this in-between where we carry these heavy weights. And when we walk through the season of Advent, that's what we do as Christians. We look back. And we think, man, Jesus did come. He did come. As promised and prophesied thousands of years before, he did just what Scripture said he would do, fulfilled every prophecy of him. And we live in the space in between where we look for his second coming, for him coming again. And that's what Jesus said. Hey, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, but I'm going to come again. And we live in the space between. And during the Advent season, that's what we look at. Our theme over the Advent season is... Ordinary people, extraordinary faith. Ordinary people, extraordinary faith. And nearly every main character in the Christmas story, if you read through it several times, they're just so ordinary. Maybe they're, maybe they're less than ordinary. They're just, you see a, a virgin teenager, you see a carpenter and Joseph, you see some simple shepherds in a field, an unknown pastor in a small synagogue named Zechariah, a barren woman named Elizabeth, John the Baptist, who is this, he's maybe the least ordinary. He's just the weirdest guy wearing camel fur and eating locusts and living in the desert. And God uses him in this incredible way as this forerunner for Christ. And on and on we could go of Simeon in the temple. And they're just, they're just so ordinary. But there's something so special about them that we're still talking about them thousands of years later. And it was not their ordinariness of who they were. It was their extraordinary faith. These people had great faith. In Luke 2, verse 4, we see Joseph. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was in the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with great child, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. 
She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, if you've ever had a child, especially your first child, you, there's a bit of nerve that goes into that. You want things to be just right and you calculate the time that it takes to get from your house to the hospital maybe and you ask the doctors all the important questions. What happens when I'm going to give birth and if you're on vacation, and uh, we had all those questions. Ashley, if you know my wife Ashley at all, she, had, she came in with a legal pad of papers to ask the doctor everything. We wanted to make sure everything is right. We wanted to be prepared. And certainly with Joseph and Mary, there's got to be this similar kind of burden on them of, you know, we're going to have this baby. And much more than this, this is not just any baby. This was God, right? This was the God, the God baby. This is like a big this is like a big thing. And so we've already seen in Joseph, he's this ordinary carpenter and he wanted to do the right thing. He was going to divorce Mary quietly so that she wouldn't be publicly humiliated. And uh, he was definitely, he decided in his heart he's going to do this. He goes to bed and what happens? But an angel shows up at night. I find it interesting that an angel waited till that night. An angel could have come the same night that an angel showed up to Mary and said, hey, you're going to be pregnant with God's child. But God didn't do it that way. He waited for Joseph to make the decision in his own heart which way it would go. And God stepped in and said, no, I said, actually, you're not going to do that. What I want you to do is to, uh, to, to marry her and to be the father of this child who would be the Christ, the Messiah. So Joseph, I'm surely, can you imagine, had to wrestle through all that ordinary man. You see his first step of extraordinary faith of saying, okay, I'm going to do this. That great loss probably to himself and his st- status in the community and uh, you know, what do you mean that your wife is pregnant, but it's of, of God himself? What does that even mean? You're just making up all these crazy stories. And so the Christmas story goes, and Joseph had great, extraordinary faith. Fast forward to this census being created, which, you know, the likelihood of that was so rare, but as God moves things and uh, like water in the, the king's heart is like water in the hand of God, so he moves the king's heart, and they're going to have the census, and now he's got to go from his hometown where he knows everybody, and he knows all the people who deliver the babies, and he knows the distance between his little shack and where the baby, he knows everything, and now he's in a foreign land. He's got to go to, you know, where his, some of his ancestral roots were, and they're in Bethlehem, and I can only imagine that Mary being great with child, and they're riding on the back of a donkey, and they're getting to this place, and he's thinking, man, if we can just get there before we have this baby, I can just just put my mind in in Joseph's a little bit. It's just so worrisome about what we're going to do, and then they get there, and there's no place for them. says there at the end of verse 7, there was no place for them in the inn. That in itself has got to be overwhelming. Can you imagine the conversation with Joseph and God at that point? All right, God, I said, yes, I'm going to trust you, and this is going to be, you know, the Messiah come into the world, and I don't feel ready for this, but we're going to trust you in this. And they get there, and then God doesn't show up the way he thought he should. Surely if i got to go to a different town, you've got everything ready. You've got the perfect house. This, this is just going to be like an extra room at the palace for, 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 the, for God to be born. And now we get there, not only is there not room in the palace, there's only one hotel, and there's no room there. But there's a little um, place over in the manger. 
The stable was not where Joseph wanted to be that night. It probably held no security or safety for him. He was only there out of desperation, and he had a choice that he had to make that night, whether to continue trusting God or to take matters in his own hands. He had to make a choice that night whether he chose faith or fear. And you wouldn't blame him for being fearful, right? No hospital, strange city, no room for them. He was going to have to help deliver this baby. He's a carpenter. This is ridiculous. He had to make the choice, faith or fear. What Joseph would later find out that the stable was really not about Joseph or even Mary for that matter. The stable was about Jesus making himself nothing, Philippians 2 talks about. He had come to humble himself to unimaginable depths so that he borrowed a stable for his birth and later after excruciating death, he would be buried in a borrowed tomb. Joseph probably didn't understand any of that in Bethlehem and the craziness of this moment. He knew that the best he could do for Mary and the Messiah was a stable full of real and ritual filth. And to battle fear and shame, all he could have done is trust that God somehow could have provided differently, but he had mysteriously had some kind of purpose in this. I think here's the lesson for us. There are times when we seek God that we find ourselves in desperate moments. Forced to a place that we wouldn't naturally choose to go. And we've got to remember that our lives and circumstances, just like Joseph and Mary, are not ultimately about us. They're about Jesus. So we're involved in a difficult marriage, or we've got difficult neighbors, or we've got difficult extended family. We've got people around us who don't appreciate us. We're walking through incredibly hard times. We're walking in an assignment that we didn't wish, that we never even prayed for, but God put it in front of us and asked us to take a step, a step of faith. And there are times where we find ourselves in that very desperate moment, in a stable where we didn't want to be, and God is saying all the while, Son or daughter, do you trust me? We've got to make a decision of faith or fear. Our lives and circumstances are not ultimately about us. They're about Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6 goes into that. What we do know is that the Father has purposes for us and our hardships that extend far beyond us. What often appear like misfortunes in the moment later proved to be means of great grace. And in our place of desperation, it may be that what we need most is not less turmoil, but more trust. One author puts it this way, I love this, God chooses stables of desperation as the birthplaces of his overwhelming grace. We know in that moment that Joseph chose faith over fear. And I think the question for us today is what will we choose? Not just in the big moments either, but in the little moments. Not just when you're birthing the Christ child, but on Monday. Tomorrow we go back to school and back to work and everything kind of changes. And when 
When things don't go as we plan, what do we choose? And even the littlest, smallest moments of the day, will we choose faith or fear? When circumstances turn bleak, when our prayers start with why God, when we feel the pain and pressure of the world, when we are tempted by the allure of greener grass or quick fixes of materialism or running from the pain in every one of those situations, we ask ourselves maybe this question or the Holy Spirit prompts it in our heart, fear or faith today, Luke? Fear or faith? And faith is not a new concept in Christianity It's not a new concept. We see it in the Christmas story. But as a matter of fact, it's been the main attribute of God's people all along. From Adam and Eve in the tree, God's asking them, hey, do you trust me? From Noah in the ark, he's calling Noah to do this ridiculous thing and build an ark when they've never seen rain. He's saying, Noah, do you you trust me? And Abraham and Isaac going up the mountain to make a sacrifice. If you've read that in the Jesus Storybook Bible, I can't even get to the end. I'm just weeping. Like, how could God ask me? He said, hey, Abraham, do you trust me? Over and over, it's the story of God's people. The the thing that makes us part of God's people, the Holy Spirit inside of us, is this, this main attribute is one of faith, where we actually trust God to carry us through places that we can't see the next step. We don't know what it's going to... We're overwhelmed with overwhelming sometimes grief and pain and fogginess, and we don't know what this next step is going to be. And God is saying, Luke, do, do, do you really trust me? then securely just take a step. Take a step of faith. It's what certainly um, Stephen and Morgan did when they moved to New Orleans with all that's there. And, and there's, there's a bit of sexiness about moving to a new city and getting there. And then you're like, oh, crap, what did we do? Like we're, sorry, you're not supposed to say that. I have kids in here. What, 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 what just happened here? And now, you know, every day it's this, and maybe it's a little more apparent to you guys. It's faith. That God's going to accomplish what he's called us here for this purpose or fear? Am I going to bow down to fear? Hebrews eleven six says, without faith it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God, it says, must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I shared a few weeks ago at our covenant partner uh, dinner about this this thing. I feel like we as a church, many of us as families that make up the church, we're at a crossroads of faith or fear. And God is asking us to take a step into something that's not really clear and maybe it's not very safe or comfortable at all. He's calling us to leave the the comfort of Nazareth and go to Bethlehem. He's asking us to step out of what we feel is comfortable and safe and secure and take a real step. And some of that might be financially to give money. Some of it's this road of adoption and fostering and we're welcoming kids in and we feel like we can't even parent our own kids or 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 whatever it is it's 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 giving of ourselves over and over and i think we've got to make a choice as a church and you've got to make a choice as a family whether we're going to follow god's direction or rebel against him and follow our own you read through the story of god's people and you see this over and over One time in Numbers 13, you see God's people have been delivered from slavery in Egypt and they're headed toward the promised land. And that's the that's the alluring part, right? It's filled with milk and honey, and man, we just can't wait to get to the promised land. 
They come to the land, they're waiting outside, and God said, I want you to send 12 spies in. And so they sent the 12 in, and the 12 came back to Joshua and Caleb with great faith saying, man, the guys in that land are ridiculously huge. Like they are giants, they're bigger than us, the walls are strong, but God is so much stronger, let's do this. Their courage is just inspiring. And then you hear from the other 10, they affirmed that the land was good. They didn't have a willingness to follow God into it. It says in verse 27 of Numbers 13, and we told him, we came to the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. This is the response of the 10 spies. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Literally see them holding up these ginormous grapes or whatever. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. Beside that, we see the descendants of Anak there, which is this group of evil people. We see these ten gave in to fear. But not only did they give in to fear, but they rallied the other people behind them to give in to fear. You see, this is how the enemy works sometimes. It's not just, it's not just your sin. Like, your sin has lasting consequences. Not just for you, but certainly for your family and even your community group and some even for this church. Because you choose to live in sin, we all will suffer. So these ten convinced the entire people that they they couldn't do it and it would be dangerous and they all grumbled against God and they refused to trust God. And because of it, they spent... The entire generation died off in the wilderness except Joshua and Caleb. And their legacy still today is one of fear and disobedience and wilderness. What a terrible legacy. All because they trusted the wrong person. What does this mean for us as a people? As we step into Advent, as we look forward to his second coming, what kind of people are we becoming? Not in the big moments, in the small moments, tomorrow, tonight as we go home, when things don't happen like we want them to. Do we trust God? Do we have joy or do we resort to just grumbling? Fearful. What kind of people are we becoming? People of fear who doubt God's strength and God's goodness and God's wisdom or people of faith, confident that God's going to do what he said he would do. You know, God never promised us we'd make it through this life easy. As a matter of fact, he promised us persecution. That's his promise to us. Hey, as you follow me, you're going to have to carry your cross. Like that is the picture of discipleship. He promised us persecution as we follow him. He promised us discomfort. As a matter of fact, everything God ever called his people to was to step out of comfort into something they didn't know. So they couldn't brag on themselves, that they would brag only on God who carried them through it. This psalm I want to finish with just real quickly in Psalms 107. It's just brought me so much encouragement this week as I've been thinking about this and what kind of legacy will I leave as a father and a husband and as a pastor of this church and what kind of legacy maybe will we leave as a church? Psalms 107 starting verse 7 
Speaking of God, he led them by a straight way till they reached the city to dwell in. This is a psalm of thanksgiving. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Get three just incredible characteristics of who God is to us. Look at him just real quickly, his steadfast love. Most things in my life are the opposite of steadfast. We look to God, he's got steadfast love, immovable, enduring, dependable, never changing steadfast love. Psalm 63 says that the steadfast love of God is better than even life itself. The psalmist points us to his wondrous works. Psalmist is looking back over the history of Israel and seeing all the times again and again and again that God showed up in incredible ways, leading them to a place to dwell, even if it's a stable. And finally, he satisfies the longing soul. We can be honest, we look for a lot of things to bring satisfaction approval and status, power and control. Hefty bank accounts, having all our kids close. We sometimes look for the greener grass, a steady job, friends, spouse, season of life. Scripture says that only God satisfies the longing soul. Of course, he's talking spiritually. None of us in here have everything figured out, but there's such wealth to the nature and character of really walking with God. He ends that little psalm talking about how he fills the hungry with good things. And I think that's what we walk into in this Advent season. The long-awaited rival for the king, and we long for him to come back. Scripture talks about the trumpet blast that happens in the sky, and dead in Christ will be raised. Jesus coming back on the white horse. Regal and majestic, he came first as a humble servant, and he, next time he comes, it'll be as a conquering king. And he will make right everything that was wrong. My heart longs for that. And I pray with many of the saints around us, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. That as he tarries, Let me and let us be people of faith who believe him and not people of fear. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word and your way. Thank you for the sweet presence, your presence with us. Thank you for these examples we have through scripture of this great cloud of witnesses that place their faith in you. I pray that we're able to live in a similar way. It's not about us. We're the ordinary people. And it's not even about the amount of faith that we have. It's who we have faith in. Jesus, we, we believe what you said, that you would never leave us nor forsake us. What, you're, what the psalmist says, that in your presence there's fullness of joy, in your right hand pleasures forevermore what you told the disciples that you were going to go and prepare a place for them 
and you're going to come again and receive us into yourself to be part of your family. We believe, Father, that even now that you're working around us and around the world, calling your lost sons and daughters into your family, adopting them, making them heirs to the throne, and that we sit in the in-between, between the first advent and the second, between life on earth and heaven, your kingdom coming. You've asked us to be vocal about that and to share your good news, this gospel with everyone. Even you tell us to go into the highways and the hedges, go and, go and find people that we should be the initiators of joy and conversation. Lord, I thank you for, Lord, the gift of faith, that even the faith that we have to continue to believe in you is a gift from you, and we are so thankful for that. And Lord, I pray you give it to us in increasing measure that we would look different than the rest of the world. We would be people of faith, ordinary people, extraordinary faith. Lord, make it so. I pray as we stand and worship for a little bit, Father, that you would speak very clearly to us in our hearts, convict of sin where needed. If there's any here that aren't not part of your family yet, that they would take a step across the line of faith and trust you as Lord and Savior. Lord, I thank you for, for this faith family. I thank you for what it means to be part of your family. As we raise our voices together, Father, I pray that it's not just our voices from the very depths of our heart that we sing to a wonderful and marvelous and supreme and weighty and awesome Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand and sing. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone.
Christ is risen from the 